Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. I just make a huge mistake. I, uh, we, Barney and I started uh, talking, but I apparently forgot to press the record button or go live button. Yes, uh, so now we have to talk uh, with you guys again. My name is Remy Smolinski, and welcome to the next episode of uh, the podcast on negotiation. And today we have a very special guest, Barney Jordan, Professor Barney Jordan, who teaches negotiation at Vleric Business School and who also is an author of a newly released book called Negotiation and Dispute Resolution for Lawyers. Barney, welcome once Thank again. You. Thank Great you. to have you with us. Uh, uh, let us start with a second introduction, right. <laughs> Barney. Okay. Um, uh, if you could uh, tell a few words about, about yourself, that would be great. Very briefly, Remy, thank you. Um, I, I was trained as a lawyer. I was professor of law at Stellenbosch University for many years. Uh, part-time involved in the human rights law practice and advice offices at a, at a time when South Africa was in political turmoil, 1980s, giving my age away as well. Um, and then eventually moved into uh, the business school world, Cape Town Stellenbosch Business Schools, and also started a consulting firm. Uh, so very much a pracademic at that stage, which I found extremely satisfying because what you learn in practice, you can you can transfer to the classroom and the other way around. Um, and you can try to better connect the two, theory and practice, because often negotiation research is really far removed from, from reality. You know, and in fact, Remy, so little information, so little research is done in the field. It's often based on, on, on simulations, laboratory studies, using mostly undergraduate students, and uh, very often skewed towards a Western way of thinking. But then since 2014, came to Fleric Business School, and uh, now it's mostly negotiation, um, conflict management, mediation, uh, research and training and teaching. And uh, so very little practice at the moment, of course, but I'm, I'm, again, hungry for that. I think it's time to start getting my hands dirty. So we'll see what, what, what the future holds. Yes, uh, Barney, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Uh, and let me also once again add uh, that you are also a seasoned mediator. Eh? You've mentioned in our first introduction that uh, that's the area that's the area yeah. where you've yeah. learned uh, yeah. learned the most. Um, um, active mediator in Europe, uh, South Africa, right? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, great to have you with us. Uh, so you. let's start. Let's start. Um, with um, uh, with a question that uh, that you or with a statement uh, re reassessing the statement that you uh, you posted at the beginning of your book uh, concerning the seismic changes in the legal environment legal pra legal practice uh, i'd be uh, super interested if you could um, if you could um, if you could briefly summarize uh, what you mean by seismic changes okay. what are those seismic changes right. and uh, uh, why and how they are important in the context of negotiation and dispute resolution I think there are essentially two major things uh, happening. The one is on the technological side. Okay? Lawyers are now being challenged by, by, by disruptive uh, players in the market, um, online legal advice. Um, many of the large accounting firms now offering their own legal ad advice and assistance. Um, so that's on the one side, a changing legal market, but what is also changing are the needs of the clients and research we did between 2016, 2016 and 18 uh, under the auspices of the International Mediation Institute demonstrated to us with, with live voting at conferences uh, across the globe 
um, that the gap is big, that lawyers are often oblivious to the real needs of their clients. And the reasons vary. It may, sometimes it's just their training. This is what I'm trained to do. And it works because I win for my client. I win the case. Or if I lose the case, at least we didn't lose so, so badly. Um, and that becomes the standard way of dealing with, with uh, disputes that result in litigation. Um, and and when lawyers are then, what we then discovered is that what the clients want is not to win cases. They want to run their business. They want to turn a profit. And litigation is a distraction. It takes energy away. It takes time away. Um, people lose focus because now they have to prepare for, for litigation uh, um, and everything that goes with that. And what do the clients want, especially the corporate ones? They want to reduce the risk of disputes. They want disputes resolved as early as possible. They want control over how the dispute is resolved because once it's in the legal system, the control is gone. But they also want to ensure that, that the result is cost-effective, not cheap. And I think this is sometimes where mediators make the mistake of saying mediation is much cheaper than litigation. Litigation. They're not interested in cheap. They're interested in cost-effective. It might still cost me a lot of money, but the overall result should be uh, uh, limited risk, some control over the process and so on. And sometimes, of course, not always, but an ongoing relationship with the people they are in dispute with is also important. Um, and that gap we, we saw was very wide. Uh, and it's not a gap that just applies to mediate, uh, lawyers, also to mediators. Mediators sometimes not realize, you know, they sell these services on, on and say, hey, it's cheaper and it's good for relationships. That's not necessarily what the clients are interested in. So for mediators, they might have to rebrand their services. They sell cost-effective early resolution of dispute. I think that might go down much better with, with clients as well. Mm -hmm. What do you think about technology as a as a as a driver of uh, of uh, of changes in the in the legal profession? Um, I, yeah. I remember reading a couple of a uh, couple of uh, weeks or months ago uh, an article um, that uh, stipulated that uh, um, uh, intelligent machines might be able to replace some of the activities. <sighs> well, large it's, part of it's already it, happening. It's already it's already happening. happening it's yeah? already happening. I mean, so many standard contracts and things. You know, you don't need a person on the other side, a human being on the other side, to to complete or to file documents sometimes. So, so that. But I think that is something lawyers, especially larger firms, can quickly catch up with, or young startups can quickly catch up with, uh, or firm, newly established legal firms, especially with some young minds involved, they can quickly catch up with that. But ultimately, it's still. How does this make the life of the client easier? How does it reduce the risk and the stress of being tied to a process that they have no control over, will take an amount of time they can't predict, will cost them an amount they can't predict, and what does it deliver? Perhaps a win. But as Voltaire said, I've only lost twice, twice in litigation. Once when I lost a case and once when I won one. So very often the win is, a, is, is an empty victory because of all the effort you made, all the relationships that got damaged. All you get is a sum of money at the end, but you've actually lost much more mm -hmm. uh, than you, you otherwise would have gained if you'd done it differently. 
We also had a nice chat uh, before we went uh, before we went live. Uh, we also had a nice chat about a need or um, uh, no need for a distinct category yeah. of legal negotiation. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, if I understood you correctly, you say uh, that there is no need for a distinct legal category, a legal dispute category, because uh, the underlying elements of um, of negotiation and dispute resolutions are, are universal. But the context can differ, and the context may require a different strategy to begin the negotiation with, it might require different tactics. Um, but uh, uh, they, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, it's my view that there's no need for a separate category. But somebody like John Landy, uh, now retired professor in the US, very well known in the field, he argues for that. Um, only in one article, then he didn't push it any further. But he says sometimes the, the legal disputes are so unique that we have to sort of deal with them differently. I, I don't really think that is necessary. Uh, and as I said earlier, I'm afraid that if that happened, it'll just be same old, same old. Um, we do the same things we did before. Now we just say this is a special category of legal negotiation. I don't know how legal negotiations will be different, materially different from, let's call it, ordinary commercial negotiation. Yes, of course, there are sometimes difficult issues. Sometimes the only issue is zero-sum money. But that's rare. Even if money is the only issue, you can still negotiate payment terms. You can negotiate interest. You can negotiate uh, some kind of quid pro quo. Um, mm -hmm. if, if somebody, you know, for example, um, infringes your, your copyright, or mine, um, you probably will go into any negotiation in a very, very tough, with a very tough stance. This has to stop all. But once you stopped, you know, handed me all oh, the copies of the works, or I, I, I hand back all the copies of the works that I've infringed or whatever, or trying to sell myself, then we can start negotiating about the compensation. Mm. So, so even in those situations, a combination of, of highly assertive approach, competitive approach, coupled with a more collaborative approach where you accommodate the other person to get this thing resolved as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. that can happen. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think anybody would ever dare to infringe your copyrights on the book on negotiation and dispute resolutions for lawyers, uh, because they would they would probably perceive you as a as as an ultimate expert in the field. <laughs> I might regard that as a compliment, Remy. <laughs> and it was meant like that. Yes, absolutely. But Barney, when we put it all together, uh, we arrived at a at a at a, at a small dilemma, right? So. so um, the profession is changing. Yeah. The legal world is changing. Uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, we are living in a cognitive dissonance between uh, yes. what uh, what the lawyers believe that the clients want and what they really want. Uh, yeah. uh, and at the same time, you say, "Well, um, negotiation. We don't. We do not need a separate category um, in uh, for legal negotiation, legal yeah. disputes." So, um, why did you decide to write the book then? Well, it's as I mentioned, you're realizing that 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 lawyers don't always give their, especially corporate clients, what the clients are actually looking for. They don't get the kind of justice they want. They don't want court justice necessarily. Sometimes they want to negotiate their own justice. Um, and I think I mentioned earlier, the legal algorithm is law plus fact equals justice, but you can have subjective justice, interests plus consensus, 
also equal justice, provided it's still within the framework of the law. That's yes. also justice. So justice, you know, access to court is very different from access to justice. Uh, and I think sometimes we confuse those two. We think the only justice is through the doors of the court. That's not so. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about jungle justice of people taking the law into their own hands, but people creating their own rights, their own frameworks. Because once you and I have agreed, we've created law. We've created a contract which we have to comply with. And that that is that is substantive justice that we've created between ourselves. Mm-hmm. So there is a need, uh, there is definitely a need for the book uh, to emphasize the importance um, <clears throat> of uh, of negotiation skills for lawyers, uh, um, it's uh, it's um, to uh, to sort of to shift the emphasis from uh, rhetorics and legal norms to uh, knowing what to say, when to say, and how to say it. Uh, um, uh, I, I, I I I I think it makes a lot of uh, a lot of sense. But if you were if you were Barney, if you were to uh, um, if you were to to, to, to do a quick elevator pitch for your book. All right. right? Uh, it's, a, it's a big <laughs> book, right? Lots of chapters. Uh, um, but um, um, why do you think um, a lawyer, a, a junior lawyer or legal student uh, should grab a book and read it? What is in there for them? My, my, probably my, one of my main purposes was, and I spent about three chapters on this, um, is how do we change our paradigm about conflict, disputes, and negotiation? Because the way we see things, perceive things, determines how we respond to those things. Um, So there's quite an elaborate discussion on conflict and uh, what could be the benefits of conflict and how can conflict be managed within any dispute or with even if there's no dispute yet uh, in a way that actually delivers some kind of benefit. How do you get the best out of it? Um, As far as disputes are concerned, especially lawyers, but also their clients, once you hear the word dispute, your image is of two people or more people opposed to each other, becoming maybe antagonistic and they're enemies of each other. And of course, that train of thought then determines how we approach that situation. Um, We probably will come in very competitively, see the other person as my opponent who has to be defeated. If I see a dispute as a thing, a binary thing, you versus me, my position versus your position. The same with negotiation. If I see negotiation as a contest to win, to beat the other person, I will approach it like that. And my tactics and even my behaviors will be used in support of achieving that particular objective. But if I see negotiation, at least in a my, my, my mindset paradigm can change from one context to the next. But if I see negotiation as an opportunity for mutual gain, not equalizing gain, but for maximizing mutual gain, that leads me to a very different approach, different tactics, and probably more respectful behaviors towards the other party as well. So a lot is on that paradigm that we have. <clears throat> we have to develop flexible flexibility, flexibility in how we see conflict negotiations and so on. The other part of it then is on how how to prepare for negotiation better, because that's critical. If you fail to prepare, the old saying goes, you're preparing to fail. So how do you prepare? There's quite a bit on that. And then how do you actually negotiate the negotiation process flow? And of course, it's not a linear thing, right? As Richard Holbrook, the um, one-time American ambassador and uh, author, uh, um, uh, 
Deputy uh, Secretary of State for the U.S. He called himself the best Secretary of State the U.S. never had, quite an arrogant man, but regarded as a very effective negotiator. But he said, negotiations like jazz. It's not linear. You know where you want to go, but you don't quite know how to get there. These are variations on the theme. So the ideas of having a clear goal in mind Prepare as well as you can, but being adaptable to deal with unexpected events. But then there's quite a bit on, on a different role, a new role for the lawyers. For, for many lawyers, this will be new. And the lawyer as dispute process architect, where you can help your client design a, dis, a process that is the most appropriate dis, process for a particular dispute. The focus being on early resolution, cost-effective resolution. And if relationships are important, negotiating in a way that will preserve those relationships. But you can also have a, a more coherent internal uh, dispute resolution system to deal, for example, with recurring internal disputes with employees, for example. But also if there are regular disputes with external parties, with suppliers, with regulators, so that you have early dispute resolution, early assessment of the dispute. As soon as it is registered that your team get together, they look at the dispute. Are we going to fight it? Are we going to go out and negotiate? Are we going to offer mediation as an alternative? How do we, how do we organize our team? How do we prepare? What are the values that will guide us in those kinds of negotiations? So you can help your client design a system that almost operates automatically. If a certain dispute comes in, you know exactly how it will be processed and where the decisions will lie about what to do. Do we fight? Do we talk? Um, and the advantage of that is that the client can then also put pressure on the external lawyers to say, this is what we want. We don't want just to go to court and win a case. This is the outcome what, what, that we want, and we want you to help us get there. So there's quite a bit on that, and there's also something on skills. Um, and here I've relied on Andrea Schneider. She was at Harvard, now at Cardozo Law School in New York. Um, she she de developed what she calls a DYNAD framework, D-Y-N-A-D. Uh, where she identified five core skills that negotiators need under any circumstances, in any kind of negotiation, whether it's so-called collaborative, competitive, doesn't matter. But it's things like social intelligence. Some call it EQ, but it's about, it's about being able to connect with the other party, creating rapport with the other person, trying to take or to 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 see the other person's perspective. You don't have to take their perspective, but you have to try and see their perspective. Where are they coming from? Because if you want to change someone's mind, you have to know what's on their minds, as they say. It's also about assertiveness, um, not being aggressive, not being a bully, but being very firm on what your client or you really care about, but flexible on things that are less important. So also flexibility and accommodation. Um, so those are some of the skills that, that she mentions. Of course, there's the obvious one of communication as well. But she says if you master those five skill sets, you should be okay for just about any negotiation context. And you should be able to adapt your, your approach between collaboration, competition, and anything in between if you can master those skills. But it all starts with us developing a different way of thinking about negotiation as mutual gain is the outcome, preferably maximizing mutual gain, not necessarily to win the other side or beat the other side or to win a case on behalf of a client. Mm -hmm. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. Barney, um, let me throw in um, uh, one question that sort of uh, uh, has been buzzing in my head ever since we started uh, the second chat. <laughs> um, so do lawyers, by uh, um, due to the fact that, uh, due to their knowledge of law, of legal norms, right? Um, do you believe that lawyers tend to emphasize the meaning or the probability of the badness, the best alternatives that uh, uh, that, uh, that disputes, uh, that there might be in disputes re dispute resolution. Is this something that helps them or is it something that, uh, I don't know, maybe um, biases them towards, uh, um, towards uh, or let's say makes them uh, more more assertive in, in negotiation situations? Yeah, yeah. How do you perceive well, that learning? Well, indeed, of course, if you're no deal alternative, I, I don't like the term BATNA because the alternative may well be a negotiated agreement, right? So, yeah. um, so, so no deal alternative uh, works for me. Um, I think if you really want to negotiate hard, be tough in a particular negotiation, you have to have leverage. As Al Capone said, kind words are always preferable, but make sure you've got a gun in your hand, okay? So you try to persuade, but knowing that you have a strong alternative gives you confidence. But it's important that you don't resort to that because it's just because it's there, because there are costs involved in resorting to your alternative. And I think we make the mistake sometimes, say, okay, my only alternative is simply to go to court. Well, there are costs involved. What do you lose by actually taking that route. If there's a relationship, that might be over. You're losing time, you're losing money, you're creating stress by now running off to court. So we always have to weigh up the costs of walking away. But having that walking away, walk away alternative is, of course, gives you leverage in the negotiation. But it's not the only form of leverage we have. We might be very persuasive. Sure. We might have better data. We might be able to identify the core interests of the client on the other side, the other mm -hmm. negotiation party, and make a proposal that meets some of those concerns. We give them what Cialdini calls scarcity. We give them something that provides a unique solution to their problem better than the alternative litigation, alternative of litigation. And I think sometimes, but I think really you find this in normal commercial negotiations as well. You know, if people have power, they want to use it. They use it too quickly, yeah. not thinking of the consequences. Okay. So having having um, having a, 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 a legal leg to stand on is always great. But we know the law is, of course, never absolutely certain either. Sure. Um, nobody can, can guarantee an outcome. So even if you have that alternative, it's not a it's not a done deal. It's not a certainty. Yes, absolutely. So speaking of which, right, um, <clears throat> what are, uh, in your opinion, as a pracademic, right, somebody who has, uh, has gathered a significant amount of um, uh, legal uh, practice, experience in legal, legal practicing law, but also in negotiation and mediation processes, uh, both on the academic and practical, uh, practical side, what are the uh, three... I don't know, two, three, four, right? Uh, three <laughs> most common mistakes uh, lawyers typically make. Yeah? We mentioned one of them, uh, we, we, we probably mentioned, right? Relying on law as such, right? Yeah. To be a good mediator, a good uh, dispute uh, uh, solver or a good negotiator means becoming less of a lawyer and more mm -hmm. of a negotiator, right? So maybe that might be one of yeah, them, yeah? Uh, what are other uh, mistakes in this context okay. that, right. uh, that you've identified in your practice? Just, just, of course, I don't want to create the impression that lawyers are all bad negotiators. This is how, do you, how do you provide a better service to your clients? That's what it's about. 
You might sure. provide a better service in one case by being a strong litigator and winning that particular case because that's the case that needs winning in that situation. But in the next negotiation, it's not about winning. It's about creating an agreement that can help people carry on with their lives, carry on with their business, continue with a relationship with the other service provider, for example. And the book is really about how do we improve the offerings that lawyers can give? It doesn't mean they're not giving uh, client service, but I think sometimes they're not giving the clients the service the clients are actually looking for. Now, I think for one, um, these are not necessarily unique to lawyers, but it's wrong strategy. And I think the whole legal mindset is, uh, is in litigation in particular, you know, in commercial negotiations, lawyers doing deals, that may be very, very different. But especially in litigation, it's, 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 it's about winning. And, and what do we want to win? We want to win our position. I have a position for my client. You have a position for your client. These positions are opposed. Now we've got a dilemma. We've got a problem that can never be solved. Because your client and my client can't both be right. Okay, so what do we do? We give it to somebody else to solve for us, an arbitrator or a judge. And there we fight hard for our position to prevail. But there's always the third side. That's your position, that's my position, but there's another story. And that story is about what is underneath those positions. What are the real needs that people have? It's not about what they say they want, what they demand. It's what do they really care about in this dispute? Is it really about the money? Is it really about winning? Hmm. Or is it about satisfying some deeper interests? And that's, I think, leads me to the second, the second thing. Apart from this zero-sum mindset, framing the problem as a zero-sum uh, problem, either or, um, it's, 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 about, it's about not identifying the right problem, not focusing on clients' real concerns, real interests. And there's quite a bit on the book on how do you discover the client's interests? How do you discover the other side's interests? Because the other side's interests are your concern. Because if you don't satisfy them to some extent, the fight will continue. Why should they accept an offer from you if it doesn't at all touch on the client's, the other party's interests? On the other hand, if you understand them, you might be able to craft a solution or a series of solutions that meet their interests, but then you can demand that some of yours be met as well. So if I could do this for you, could you do this for me? And the last one, I think, is just um, the tendency to ignore, let's call it the people side. I hate the, I, the word soft skills because these are not soft issues, um, but the people side, we, we ignore the emotions. We think we, you know, this is a rational game. We shouldn't be emotional. That's nonsense. And we know from Kahneman and others' research, we cannot exclude emotion from any decisions we make. The, the end result might look very rational, but there was an emotional trigger somewhere. It could be a fear. It could be a concern that led us to a decision that seems rational but was infused with a lot of emotion. So how did lawyers help their clients manage their emotions? Because often the lawyers get taken on, uh, taken by the client's emotions and, and they run away with the lawyer because of the high emotions. They're angry, they want to destroy the other side and the lawyers just go along. Instead of saying, but hang on, this client is not thinking straight. There are biases, emotional and other biases in this person's head. How do I help the client overcome those or at least see what happens if we proceed with this case based on those those emotional outbursts or biases but also what about my own there's good research out there that lawyers are often 
or sometimes even more biased, more influenced by biases than their clients. But they often live in denial. They often make very emotional decisions, which they then disguise as rational decisions. But underneath it, there was an emotional response, getting angry with the other side, and because of that, making certain decisions that might not have been the best under the circumstances. So for me, it's those. The strategy, wrong strategy, uh, the zero-sum mindset about the nature of the problem, either or. And then I think ignoring the role of the people issues and the emotions in, in the negotiation. Mm, thank you. Uh, thank you, Barney, for sharing your observations. So we, if we reverse engineer um, these three, um, yeah. would we get a good set of recommendations in terms of, you know, how to uh, how how could lawyers improve their negotiation skills? Or is yeah. there anything that you would add uh, to the list? Yeah. <laughs> look, look, we're not dealing with an exact science here to begin with. Right, and the science, as such as it is, is always not always all that great, uh, and it's in any event quite culturally biased as well. But I think for me, um, there, there are always three elements involved in conflict negotiation disputes that's people, process, and problem. We need to be able to master the kinds of pe people skills that can help us create connection. Um, that can help us communicate effectively, that can help us see the other person's perspective, help us empathize to some extent if we need to. Um, those are the skills that are essential for good negotiation, but it's always people first and then process. How can I, as a negotiator or as a lawyer in negotiating, negotiation, lead the process? I do that by preparing very well, because the better prepared I am, the better I am able to adjust my approach as, as things happen during the negotiation. And that preparation, of course, carries on. It doesn't stop when we start talking. It carries on because always new information coming up, new data, new information, new answers to questions, new nonverbal cues that we pick up. So that, that continues. Um, but then it's also about leading the process. It's about how, how do you how do you let others have your way? Um, you can do that not in a manipulative way, but you can do that by making the other person feel that they have autonomy. If I say to you, okay, Remy, uh, thanks for meeting with me. What, what are the issues that you have to talk about? Okay, we have a bit of small talk. I talk about you, get, get to know you a bit better. So what are your issues? You say, I've got these five issues. I say, actually, those are mine as well, but I've got one or two I might add. Is it okay with you? Yes. Where would you like to start, Remy? Oh, item number two. Happy to do so. Mm -hmm. I'm leading this process. But you I feel... I ask them smart questions, yes. Well, ex exactly. And it's leading not in a domineering way, not, not being prescriptive. But it, you, what you want is to create a kind of mood music, a climate where, where we can work together. Um, for mutual gain. But doesn't mean we have to like each other, be nice to each other, because even if we start working together to say, you know, we've got this dispute for our clients, our clients both want this to be resolved as quickly as possible, so let's commit ourselves to that, let's work as far as, together as far as we can, but there will be tough issues where you have to take a tough stand. But then your behavior doesn't change. You still treat the other person with utmost respect, because if I don't respect you, I'm inviting disrespect to, towards me. If I don't hear you, I invite you to do the same to me. Why would I be so stupid? And then it's so it's the process, the preparation, and how do we lead that process um, and be flexible to deal with, with things that might happen, things we haven't foreseen, 
And then we get to the problem. And not just that what seems to be the problem, seems to be the problem, what they say the problem is, or what my client says the problem is, but what's the why behind it? What are the deeper concerns that, that are at play here? If we can discover that, then, then we can start looking for creative options. Um, so how do we, how do we br uh, confirm what is common? How do we integrate what is integratable? And how we deal with the conflicting issues that remain? Um, so for me, it's always in that order as well. The people first, then the process, and, and then the problem. And I would advise any negotiator to, to try and do things in, in that sequence. Connect first, settle the process, and then you tackle the problem. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a great set of recommendations. Thank you so much. Uh, um, <clears throat> our, um, so even so, let, let's let's assume two situations. Yeah, one is before reading your book and after having read, uh, read your book, right? Uh, so let's assume before reading your book, are lawyers good negotiators? After we know that they should that that they will be. Yeah? Uh, but before, are, are lawyers good negotiators? Or they ask for or they ask for the money back. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't think I can answer that question. Uh, yes, there are very good negotiators among lawyers, but they're very poor ones, just like with any professional negotiators. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, Lee Thompson at Kellogg did research, field research, and discovered that less than 10% of negotiators who negotiate professionally are able to maximize value in negotiation. The rest are mediocre deals, no deals, or clear win-lose deals. Um, and I know from experience, and I think you do too, if you do simulations with, with participants in our programs, you can see it. Um, the mistakes people typically made, and they relate to the people, the process, and the problem aspects. Yeah. Um, so I, there are very few people, if you look at the criteria that she developed and that Andrea Schneider and, Schneider and I refer to it in a moment developed, there are very few people who can honestly tick all the boxes, uh, who have the right flexible mindset, who are excellent at preparation, who can manage process, who can really listen carefully, who can be creative to find options. There are very few of those. And one of the best articles that, that, that came out on, uh, on this issue was one that published by Andrea Schneider, uh, then at Harvard in 2002. Um, and she called it Exploding Negotiation Myths, looking at the char characteristics of effective negotiators. Um, and she did that by interviewing hundreds of lawyers, um, asking them how they, whom they rate from their opponents as effective negotiators. And she came up with, let me just give you an idea, good negotiators, and there were 20 characteristics. They are ethical. They are sociable. In other words, they can connect. They are fair-minded. Um, they are rational, they're trustworthy, they're self-controlled, they're dignified, they're communicative, they're adaptable, they're astute, they know what they're talking about, they're careful, they're accommodating, they're helpful, they're realistic, they're agreeable, they're confident. <laughs> those, those are the characteristics that people admire in negotiation. So are lawyers good negotiators? I'm sure there are many who can say, hey, I can tick a lot of those boxes. Um, mm -hmm. But Many who say, no, this is not me. I'm a hard bargainer. And if I don't get my way, I will push and I might even bluff and threaten to get my way. Well, that's, you might get what you want, but that just make you a good negotiator or make the outcome a good outcome for, for your client. So 
can't give you a straight answer, but I'm a lawyer, of, of course, so don't expect a straight answer <laughs> in the first place. But uh, thank you for an ambiguous answer, uh, Barney. But uh, there is a very simple answer, yes? Yes. Once they all read your book, they will all be better. Right? No, so, you know what? My, my big hope is that it will trigger some questions. People will start thinking about, how am I doing at the moment? What am I doing that works? And let me do that. Let, if it works, let me keep on doing it. What am I really good at? But what, where are the learning points? And I think that's where the learning happens. Only if we realize yes. there are things we can do better. Otherwise, we always stay in this phase of you know, that learning cycle of unconscious incompetence. We think that's we're right. doing great, but we don't know that we can do better. And once we realize there are gaps. That's when the learning starts. And then we practice, practice, practice. And eventually that becomes second nature until we learn new things. And so the cycle will continue. So my hope is just that it will trigger some questions in people's minds. And if it helps and make them more effective, I'd be, I'd be overjoyed. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, guys. So remember, um, get the book. Uh, um, and la, my last question I always uh, ask to all my guests, um, great negotiators, Barney, quickly. So uh, what, who do you think uh, are your negotiation role, role models who uh, you would um, <clears throat> set for your student as an example and, uh, and, and why? I, I have two standards. The one, of course, is very parochial. And that was Nelson Mandela. Um, but what made him unique is not so much because a lot of negotiations he didn't do. Okay, it was his team who did it. But what he was excellent at is connecting with people. He created the climate where other people wanted to work with him. He was trustworthy, he was competent, he was ethical, and he was benevolent in his intentions. But he was very tough at the same time. But I think his unique skill was, skill was to connect with other people and to be trusted. The other one was Angela Merkel. Um, she, for me, has always stood out as one of those people who, who will let others have her way because of her quiet approach to things. Uh, you don't, well, I don't know what happens in the back room, but what I've read about her and so on is required confidence, well-prepared, very smart, um, and tries very hard to connect with the other people. And I think, again, her being trusted, uh, I'm not talking about politically necessarily within Germany. There might have been other politicians who didn't or Germans who didn't. But I think at an international level, she was trusted um, by all. And I think it's because she instilled trust in people. And, and, of course, that's one of the sad things of, of our lives. You know, we want to be trusted, but we're not. And we want to trust, but we don't. And that makes us feel insecure and, 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 and unsafe. But as soon as we meet somebody whom we can trust, of course, then we're prepared to take risks with them. And I think the same applies to negotiating. Uh, the good negotiators for me are the ones who are really trustworthy. They might not have the best skills. They might have others doing the skill stuff. But to create that connection is, for me, the, the most important of all. Barney, thank you so much for sharing your thank knowledge. You. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for introducing your book and talking a little bit about uh, about how good or how bad uh, lawyers are. Uh, guys out there, please remember the book is out already. Um, the title, Google uh, <clears throat> Negotiation and Dispute Resolution for Lawyers, Barney Jordan, Professor Barney Jordan. Barney, it was a delight having you in our podcast. Thank you thank so you much for me. your time and so long until the next time. It was an honor. Thank you very much indeed, Remy. We'll Thank speak you so again. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care.